0: Hey, I want everyone to take out their uh, their bulletin insert here just real quickly. I want to make sure that you guys get this. Um, One of the reasons we've packed a lot into next weekend, we've got something uh, Saturday night and Sunday night, not necessarily by our design, but we're going to run with it, is um, we have families joining us for Vacation Bible School this week. Uh, The Piedmont Pride has offered a north side night for their doubleheader on Saturday night. You bring a bulletin, you get in for free, and you get a, a voucher for a free hot dog and a drink. So um, one of our little fellas is going to get the opportunity to throw out the first pitch. All the inter-inning games are going to be north side people. So come have fun. That's going to be a blast. And then on Sunday night, we've got our second family fun night for the summer. Anyone ever seen the Minute to Win It Games? I think it's on is it on Netflix now um, with an uh, old Olympic skater, Apollo Anton Ono. It, that's not how it was back in my day, but uh, it's good. We have some really crazy games. So the great part is they're only a minute. So you, if it's a coordination game or a strength game or an eat something gross game, you only have to endure it for 60 seconds, okay? Uh, maybe even less because it's who gets done first. And so that's going to be an absolute hoot. So anyone who wins, the volunteers and wins, uh, there's going to be prizes, Chick-fil-A gift cards, uh, Baskin-Robbins, we got all kinds of good stuff. So both of these things, in addition to vac- Vacation Bible School, would be great things to bring your friends to. It's going to be a good time, and um, it's going to be a lot of laughs, uh, I think, both nights. So some fun stuff. We are starting a new series here this morning called Superheroes Can't Save You, and there's something interesting that happens every Halloween, um, and, and I'll give you an illustration. Wonder Woman was created in 1941. Okay, many of you don't know that that is when Wonder Woman made her um, comic book debut, uh, right, uh, kind of smack in the middle of uh, the beginning of the the World War II era. And yet, you would never see any little girls dress up as Wonder Woman until two years ago when the movie came out. And so fashion always follows kind of culture. And so when, when, when a movie hits, you can tell who the cool it superhero is based upon how the kids dress up when they come to your door. And so every second girl that came to my door uh, this past Halloween seemed to be dressed in a Wonder Woman costume. And now maybe it's a, maybe it's Captain Marvel. Donovan, you think that's what it is now? It's Captain Marvel. She's the new uh, female heroine. Um, when you're a kid, it's kind of cute to idolize your heroes. You know, we, we talk about that. We even have a television show called American Idol, it's been around. It's, it's, it's fun to kind of idolize your heroes. And yet the truth is when we look to them, there, there's really not a whole lot that's necessarily heroic because the comic book characters are fictions of our imagination. They're not true. I saw a video here this week that, that really is one of those superhero stories. And what makes it a superhero story is that there's really nothing super about it. It's an average Joe. There was a 17-year-old high school student and I think this was in either Taipei or somewhere in Indonesia, who is walking down the street in the middle of a bunch of high-rises, and about seven floors up, there's a toddler that has gotten through the bars on the balcony. And uh, he is dangling, holding on. I mean, a toddler doesn't really know what's going on. He just knows he needs to hold on. And uh, he loses his grip. And while there are people away, kind of at a vantage point, watching what's going on, there is no one prepared for what is about to happen. This teenager happens to be walking under the balcony at just the right time. People scream. He looks up, puts his arm out, and he catches the kid. Didn't leap a tall building. You know, didn't prove to be bulletproof. It was just a really what we would call an average Joe who happened to be in the right place at the right time. The challenge is, while it's kind of cute to dress up like a superhero when you're a kid, there does become a fine line between Um, learning from and appreciating, and really what we would call idolizing, worshiping. And the thing you find about the superheroes in the Bible, no, we're not talking about Thor or Iron Man or the Hulk or Wonder Woman. We're talking about the heroes of the faith. They would all say that there's nothing super about who they are, that they're just average Joes who believe in an incredible God. And so this morning we have the chance to look at uh, one of the very first characters in the Bible, uh, Abraham. Or Father Abraham, if you remember that song. Father Abraham, and how uh, the the truth is certainly there that Abraham cannot save you. Now, there's a lot of interesting things about Abraham that make him worthy of us looking at. Uh, One of the things we're going to do here is we're going to work through a little biblical theology, not only about salvation, but how do we take Genesis 12 through 25 and smash it into one sermon and, and, and do credence to the story. One of the things that we can say, kind of establishing our first point, is that all throughout Abraham's life, Abraham demonstrated a great faith in God. If you know what a topographic map is, a topographical map is one that shows the elevations. If you have a, um, if you have a globe, it's the area where you feel the ridges because those are mountains or valleys that are carved in. So there's a 3D nature to this. If we could topographically uh, look at um, Abraham's life, almost like an EKG there would be some Mount Everest moments where he is certainly demonstrating great faith in God. And the first of those really occurs at the beginning of Abraham's story. Abraham's story begins at the end of chapter 11, but in earnest, it begins in Genesis chapter 12 when he is called to go to the promised land of Canaan. So I want you to follow along with me. You'll see the words on the screen. You can follow along in your own copy of the scriptures. Genesis chapter 12, verses one through nine. Now the Lord said to Abram, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "'To your offspring I will give this land.' So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east, and there he built an altar to the Lord, and he called upon the name of the Lord, and Abraham journeyed Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Najeb. In chapter eleven, Abram and his father and his brothers moved from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran, which would be found in modern day Turkey. Uh, evidently, God had been in the process of calling Abram and his family. And so when we get to Genesis chapter 12, Abram is called to finally go on and finish the trip to not just stop short in Haran, but to make it to uh, Canaan. And so God shows up and he does something really interesting. He says, hey, uh, Abram, I want us to go on a little adventure. And Abram says, I'm interested. He goes, I want you to pack your bags. I want to give you everything that you got. I want you to move. Okay, God, sounds great, man. This is going to be fun. Where are we going? You just start walking in this general direction and keep walking and keep walking and keep walking and I'll tell you when to stop. No contract. All right, God, if I do my part of the deal, will you do your part of the deal? No fine print, no map, no GPS. Guys, there's no destination. God doesn't... Abram doesn't know what the land of Canaan is. God says, to the land that I will show you. Now, listen, I'm getting ready to go on vacation a week from Monday. And we planned this vacation last September. Bought the plane tickets, made the hotel reservations, rented the made, made the reservation for the rental vans. And when I, now that I checked to see what everything would cost if I booked it now, I'm really glad that I did it, like nine months ago. It's a third of the price. Um I like to plan because I want to make sure that we can get into congested areas. We want to to make sure that we've got a place to stay and we've got a car to get there. And secondly, I'm cheap. And so between those two things, I like to plan in advance. And yet there is nothing that that, that Abram, Abram gets here. And yet we see Abram's faith because you have a parallel here in Genesis chapter 12 with Genesis chapter 1 and 2. All Adam and Eve had to go on was God's word, and they failed to listen. All Abram has is God's word, and he obeys. God says, I want you to go. And we see his faith demonstrated by commensurate action. He doesn't form a committee to talk about going and what it'll be like when we finally get where we're going. He goes, he does it, he acts upon what he says. Just on the basis of God's word, God is in the process of beginning to create a new people who have the opportunity to obey him. Here's the other thing that's kind of crazy. Abram's 75 years old when this happens. He is almost as old as Ed Rock, And um, almost, almost. And listen, here's the deal. And Abram lived to a ripe old age. I think he was about 100 and 138 is sticking in my mind for some reason. I don't remember exactly how old he was. But he's seventy-five. Okay, by American standards, he is ten years past retirement age. Okay, at retirement age, you are supposed to kick back and relax and look over what you have accomplished over your life and enjoy what you have earned. And yet, if you pay attention to God's call, God tells him, "Go." And he, there's a series. There's and and and. I want you to go from your father's house, from your uh, from your country. From your kindred, from your father's house. Three things linked by uh, this word, and there's a series. I want you to go from your country. I, I, everything, Abram, your country, your kindred, your father's house. Everything that provides you security, everything that provides you identity, I want you to sacrifice all of it. I want you to get rid of everything. Everything that you use to identify. I'm, I'm a Haranian. Don't care. Not anymore. You're a nomad. Uh, I, I These are my people, not anymore. You're going to sojourn out, you're going to leave them. Uh, my father's house, not identified by that anymore. And if there is anything that I think that we need to hear, especially because I wonder sometimes whether American Christians are more American or more Christian, I think that's a legitimate question because our faith should transcend national boundaries. We're going to see here in just a second. Abram was a terribly judgmental person person of great faith, but a person of great judgment. And in a day when we want to find all of these minor issues, and, and I, you can rewind the tape, I said that all these minor issues to establish our identity. I'm ACC. I'm Big South. I i don't like football. I pull for Alabama. You know, whatever your, your poison is. I'm Clemson. I'm USC. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Sweet Tea Southerner. I'm a talk-funny Yankee. If the thing that identifies you is anything but your faith in Christ, you have picked the wrong denominator to be in common with people. The the one thing that should clearly mark you out as a believer is your relationship with Christ. That's why God is calling Abram at 75. He thinks he's reached the the, the pinnacle. He says, all the stuff that you've accumulated, all these things that identify you and give you security, you must sacrifice them so that the only thing that identifies you is your obedience and your relationship to me. If I could stamp that inside everyone's eyelids, that every time you blink, you see it. We live in a world that has completely made identity polymorphic. It can become anything. And as Christians, we have sat on our hands and we have zippered our lips far too long to say that the predominant thing that must identify us is that we are followers of Christ. So things that the world celebrates, we don't celebrate. We celebrate obedience to God. And if that goes contrary to the spirit of the age, then so be it. Because we want to be identified as God's obedient people. And so Abram goes out in faith. Obedient to God's word, giving up everything that he has. There's a second way in which Abram, uh, kind of over the course of his life, demonstrated a great faith. In Genesis chapter 15, he's promised a son. And yet, he had to wait an, ent- uh, an entirely long time before he, he realizes. Genesis 12, where we're at, God has promised that he would make a a great nation to descend from him. Now, part of the issue with being a great nation is you have to have some kind of progeny. And yet when Genesis 15 rolls around, the, uh, the chief um, son like figure in Abr- Abram's household is his chief servant Eliezer of Damascus. And so God comes to uh, Abram in Genesis 15 and reiterates the promise that he's going to make of him a great nation that's going to bless the ends of the earth. And Abram goes, well, I guess you're talking about Eliezer. And God clarifies His promise. He says, no, 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 no. It's not one that you adopt to be a son, but one who will be naturally born of you. Now, I know you're north of 75 years old, but it's going to be naturally born from you. In Genesis fifteen five, one of the most important verses in all of the Old Testament, says that in response to this promise that Abram was going to be a natural father, not a surrogate father, a natural father, Genesis fifteen five says, Abram... Believed God and it was credited or reckoned to him is righteousness. Huge verse because Abram, who lived 400 years before God gave Moses the law, was saved not by keeping the law, but by believing God's word, having faith that what God promised he would do, he would do. Huge. Genesis chapter 16. Okay, got my orders, God. It's not going to be Eliezer. I'm going to be able to produce a son. From my own loins, it's going to come. From, it's going to be my DNA. So t- some time goes on. And we don't know how much time between Genesis fifteen and sixteen, and and Abram and Sarai are sitting around the, the dinner table, and um, Sarai goes, "Okay, so we know clearly, he's going to be your son. Does that mean he's going to be our son? Did he say I'm included? Because nothing's happening, and we're getting older. So I have a great plan so that we can help God." To accomplish what he needs to get done, I have a handmaiden, and um, uh, polygamous marriages are okay in the ancient Near East. So, why don't you marry my uh, handmaiden, uh, Hagar, and then we'll see God's promise come to fulfillment because you'll be the dad. He didn't say anything about me being the mom. When you think you need to help God out, you are barking up the wrong tree, it's a problem. God goes, no, 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 no. Let's clarify this. Uh, it, 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 85 years old, or maybe 86 years old now, they had been in the land for 10 years. Um, God makes it very clear that Abram and Sarah will have, Sarai at this point, will, will have a child. Yet this child is not received until Genesis 21. Abraham is 100 years old before he holds Isaac in his arms. Which means in Genesis 12, when he is 75, Genesis 21, he is 100. He had to wait 25 years for the promise to be fulfilled. And yet, Genesis fifteen five, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you had to wait 25 years for anything, would you do it? Would you do it? Listen, we're the people that are so obnoxiously impatient that we microwave Pop-Tarts, okay? Okay? Did you know that there are literal instructions on how to microwave Pop-Tarts? Take it out of the wrapper, which some of these instructions, please read them. If you don't know to take it out of the wrapper, that's that's a problem. Take it out of the wrapper. Turn your microwave on for three seconds, after which when you pull the Pop-Tart out of the microwave, if you are foolish enough to bite it, the the molten insides of that Pop-Tart will melt the inside of your mouth. Like, don't do it. And so we are the people that are so busy and so impatient that we don't have time to traditionally pop a Pop-Tart. If you are a person that is so obsessed with time that you have to microwave a Pop-Tart, let me just suggest you might want to squeeze a little bit of margin into your life. If the 60 seconds that it takes to toast it is just not fast enough for you, you have bigger problems who we can talk about this morning. Now, here's the point. Abraham had to wait 25 years for the promise to be fulfilled. And you think waiting three minutes proves your faithfulness. Listen, the, the point here is that uh, those who aspire to be faithful are called to a long obedience in the same direction. Uh, just like Abraham. All right, Go. Just keep walking. Just keep walking. Just keep walking, walking, walking. I'll tell you when you get there. We can learn from that. We can have a great faith in God too if we're faithfully obedient a long time in the same direction. Now, despite this, all of these mountain peaks that we've talked about, his his willing, willingness to go to a place that he has no directions to, his willingness to wait for a son that is promised but delayed Despite this great faith that Abraham uh, has, Abraham lives with a considerable amount of fear. That's a good thing for you to hear, because I think sometimes we paint these superheroes as these bulletproof identities, and friends, they have clay feet, just like you and I. They have chinks in their armor, and there, there are two episodes, we looked at two episodes over Abra- Abraham's life that demonstrate his faith, his travel to the land of promise, his, his patience, uh, for the promised son, we see two episodes that are eerily similar that show uh, Abram and Abraham's considerable fear that he lived with, and uh, it's it's strange. You almost go, all right? Did um did the Holy Spirit repeat himself with these two episodes in Genesis 12? Right after what we just read about, God has been faithful not only to call Abraham, but to because remember, no moving trucks. You had you had moving camels. You know, that's how you transported your goods. You packed it up in a box, strapped it on the back of a camel, and then hope you balanced it just right. So, you know, I, I hung, hung a bag on this side, hung a bag on this side, and let the camel go. Uh, traveling hundreds of miles, I think it was close to 800 miles that they traveled from Haran to the Promised Land. And um, God was powerful enough to call him. God could be trusted to guide and to provide And there are years that take place between chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, and chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. So between 12, 9 and 12, 10, there's years that take place. Now, how do we know this? Verses 6, 7, and 8 that we just read indicated three places that Abram lived once he got to the promised land. Uh, You can see it right there. It's very plain. Uh, Verse 6, it says, Abram passed through the, the land to the place called Shechem. So he was there in Shechem. And then verse 8, he moved there so that he was east of Bethel and west of Ai, he was there, verse 9, he continued on to the Negev. Now, some of you move pretty frequently. Some of you, in the seven years that I've been here, have owned maybe two homes or three homes. Um, but you're you're at where you're at for at least a couple of years, right? And so, granted, Abram and his retinue are, are, are fairly nomadic, but there's hundreds of them. I mean, Abr- Abram's a very wealthy person. He has all kinds of servants. He has all kinds of flocks. And, and so, not only would it have taken a long time for them to travel, but once you set up base camp, um, you're not doing this for a day or two. There were at least weeks or months, maybe even years, that are recorded in these three or four verses that just kind of casually, yeah, he lived in Shechem, and then he moved over by Bethel, and then he continued on to the Negev. There's probably months or years that are represented there. So, God has been fully faithful to take care of him, to guide him, to sustain him. And yet in chapter 12, verse 10, we hear something that God can't fix. Do you know that there's something that God can't fix in the Bible? At least from Abram's perspective. Listen to verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram, who was called by God, guided by God, protected by God, sustained by God to go to the promised land, leaves the promised land, and went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, this is my paraphrase, I know that you are smoking hot, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me. Um, Abram was a very optimistic fellow. They will kill me, but they'll let you live, so say you are my sister. There is no way in a thousand years I would ever want to say, uh, my wife is my sister. That's just gross. So say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared because of, for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house, meaning, aka, his harem. And and for her sake, Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. And Abram got sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. Pharaoh really liked Abram's sister. He gave a big old dowry. Verse 17, But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What have you done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go, and they are expelled from the country. It says, And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Here's why this is such a terrible thing. We have just looked at Abram's great faith in in in. Doing something hard, going to a place he didn't really know about, waiting for a long time for this promise that God had. And yet, here, he believed that God was good enough and strong enough and powerful enough and able enough, good enough to care for him in his sojourn. Yet, when the famine strikes, God's not strong enough to help him now. This is the land that God had told me to go to. And the first serious obstacle that comes up, he goes to not God for his security but to the reigning superpower of the day. I'm going to become a refugee. I'm going to emigrate. I'm going to go to Egypt because their economy is doing awesome. And God, I don't think you can take care of the famine for me while I'm in the promised land. Here's the problem. Not only is he not trusting God to protect him from the famine by remaining in the land that God had given him, Abram doesn't believe that if he goes to Egypt, God is powerful enough to protect his family. So now he has to concoct this sister-wife lie. See, it's not a modern innovation. You know, this television show, Sister Wives. I think Abram started the whole thing. He, he's the original sister-wife kind of person. And so he lies, and in a strange way, this Pharaoh, who is as pagan as it can be, conceived of himself as a god, for an Egyptian deity for his people, proves to be more righteous than Abram. And he goes, why did you not tell me? Go, take your wife, and get out of here. Now, you would think that there would be a lesson that had been learned here. And yet, when we turn to Genesis chapter 20, just a few chapters here later, again, years go by, somewhere between, uh, what, 85 and 100. So there's, there's a 15-year gap. We don't know exactly where this falls. And yet, in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham and Sarah relocate to a town called Gerar, and there is a king there uh, named Abimelech. And because Abraham is, again, afraid for his life, he does something that we're about to find out they did everywhere they went. So the point here is this, this is not just two episodes in Abraham's life. All right, Genesis 12, almost as soon as they get to Canaan, he runs to Egypt and he lies about Sarah being his wife. Genesis 20, many years later, uh, these are not just bookends. You're going to find that not only the bookends, but all the books in between are perpetuated by this sister wife lie. So Genesis chapter 20 will begin in verse uh, we'll begin in verse three. Uh, they get to Gerar, and Abram lies about Sarah again, "No, she's not my wife, she's my sister." Verse three, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, I love this. You are a dead man because of the woman you have taken for she is a man's wife. This is probably more along the lines of what Abraham should have said in the first place. It's what Adam should have done with Eve. And yet he, not only does he let a snake close to her, it's a talking snake. All the more reason for it to die immediately. Adam does not protect his wife. Abraham hides behind his wife's skirt. And yet God's the only one that speaks truth. Abimelech, you're a dead man because of the woman you have taken. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, which means he had included her into his harem, but there had been no consummation of the marriage. And so Abimelech had not approached her and he said, "'Lord, will you kill an innocent people?' "'Did he, did not himself say to me, she is my sister?' "'And she herself said, he is my brother.' In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, uh, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So the next morning, he has one heck of a dream. God speaks to him through this dream. The next morning, he gets up. He calls all of his court officials. He goes, guys, let me tell you what's going on. I had a dream that revealed some truth to me that I did not know. This woman, that I, the, the most recent addition to the harem, yeah, the smoking hot one um, from down south, uh, <clears throat> she's married. And the reason we're experiencing all these problems that we'll find out about here in just a second is because of her. So we're gonna we're gonna return her. He comes clean. He's like, guys, listen, I did this, but I did not know what was going on, and there's nothing that has happened. Between us. So, verse 9, it says Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? Abraham became the cause of a curse that got placed on uh, not just Abimelech, but many people because of his lie. You think when you tell an untruth that it's just expedient, it's you getting out of a situation, and you never realize the damage you do to others. It may not even be the intended target. It could be a whole secondary list of people that are aff- afflicted here. So Abimelech called Abraham and said, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You, you have done to me things that ought not to have been done. Can you, have you ever had the opportunity to say that to somebody? You have done to me something that just shouldn't have been done. That's a terrible thing. And so the king is genuinely, here's a big word, flabbergasted. The Bimelech said to Abraham, what did you see to cause you to do this thing? Verse 11, Abraham said, listen to this, get get a load of this. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. He jumps to the worst possible conclusion about people who don't look like him. Now listen, we know, based upon the inerrant and inspired word of God, that the people who who do not worship God are are not destined for a good place. Uh, Everything about them is, is infected. Maybe that's a good word. Uh, their mind, their heart, their emotions, their will, their desires, everything is infected by sin and they don't even know it because the Bible says that they are blinded to sin. They, they don't know it. You can't know what you don't know. That, to believe in the doctrine of total depravity, to believe that in our total person, all of us is fallen. There's not any part of us that's fully redeemed. Every part of who we are is broken. Total depravity is not complete depravity. Not everyone is as bad as they can be. Think about you at your worst like that every day. That's complete depravity. That's what Abraham believed about these people. He said, there's absolutely no fear of God. And yet, here's what's strange. This pagan king is correcting the prophet Abraham on what is right. Abraham is the source of sin and curse for the king and his people. And he says, I did it. Because y'all going to hell, I just don't care. Just don't care. Didn't think there's any fear of God. How terribly judgmental. Not only is he not trusting in God, he is judging people in a way that is completely and totally inappropriate because it is God's and God's alone right to judge. Verse 12, he tries to justify it. You gotta love it. You can tell he's a dude because he's trying to, he, he, he just lied, and he got caught in the lie. He's called before the king to testify, and he has an excuse. Oh, you know what? My lie was justified. Verse 12, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So he, she's like his half-sister. He's like, so technically, I was telling the truth. Listen, if your truth depends on a technicality, you're a bold-faced liar. You, you should not have to depend on a technicality to determine your truthfulness. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, verse 13, I said to her, this is the kindness. Get this. When I started wandering, I told her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. This is not just an episode in chapter 12 and an episode in chapter 20. But everywhere they went, they played the sister wife game. So, hey, we're going to Rock Hill. Oh great, we're moving again. Yep, yep, yep. <clears throat> you know those Rock Hillians. <clears> there <throat> There's absolutely absolutely no fear of God in their eyes. Abraham. Yeah. Are you gonna make me do the sister wife thing again? Oh yeah, yeah. Rock Hill, we can't trust them. All right, two years later, oh we're moving to moving to York, and you know those those York people, there's no fear of God in their eyes. Are we gonna do this sister wife thing again? Yes. Everywhere they went, this was his besetting sin. Abraham was a liar. And here's what we find. Every time Abram operates out of fear rather than faith, his plans consistently fail. And I would ask, rhetorically, I would ask you this question. When you act in faith, your your plans may fail, but God's plan always happens here's the deal. God is very interested in Abram and his family. God has made it very clear that there's a special son that will be born of Abram and Sarah. And so when, when Abraham jeopardizes that relationship, is the baby Pharaoh's? It sounds like a Moripovich Povich episode. Here's the DNA test. Who's the dad? Could it be Abimelech from Gerar? Could it be the Pharaoh from Egypt? No, it's Abraham and Sarah. Surprise, Abraham, you're the dad. Well, that's that's news to me. Abraham, who wanted this promise so desperately, was the first person to jeopardize it when he thought, "Mm, God's just not taking care of me the way that I want to be taken care of. So I think it's better for me to lie to preserve my life than to be faithful and die. When you operate out of fear rather than faith, your plans will fail too. I think that's that's more than a, a cookie, a fortune cookie uh, tale. When you operate out of fear instead of out, out of faith, uh, why would you expect your plans to, to succeed? But when you operate in faith, God's plan always succeeds. And here's here's the issue we get to the crux of this here. Abraham has has proven to us through his his um, faith journey in chapters twelve through twenty that he is a man of incredible faith. Part of his testimony is the same testimony that he has, that he's a man of incredible fear. He's a man that doesn't display faith all the time. Friends, that's kind of comforting for me because I don't know how much you screw up. I do know how much I screw up. And it's discouraging sometimes that I've walked with Christ as long as I have and I'm not more consistent than I am. I'm not deeper than I am. I'm not more fervent than I am. And yet I find that even these people that we consider superheroes in the Bible... You know what? They were they were weak, and they dealt with moments of um, not at their best. I can identify with Abraham. Abraham's not on some shelf that I can't reach to or attain. I can learn from this. And yet, here's the, here's the story. It's through all of this, through, through the whole episode, Abraham's faith, Abraham's fear, God proves the greatness of his plan to bless the nations. Here's the deal. Abraham cannot save himself. He he lies to save himself, and it gets ruined, and yet God in the background proves that he can save, and his plan to bless the nations is an incredible one. You see, God enables Abraham to finish just fine, just fine. You you get done with this whole storyline between 12 and 20, and Abraham being a consistent and perpetual liar to protect himself, not trusting God, and you go, I don't know how Abraham's going to finish. God enables them to finish just fine. And the, the, the reason for that is this whole section of the Scriptures, Genesis 12, really through 25, when Abraham dies, is really not about Abraham, but the God that Abraham serves. And very close uh, to the end of Abraham's life, he learns the most important lesson about the God who can save that he'll ever learn. It's in Genesis chapter 22, that Abraham learns this uh, important lesson. We'll begin in verses 1 through 3. It says, after these things, God tested Abraham. So, uh, one of the things that's important about this chapter is the Bible tells us on the front end something that Abraham didn't know. God says, verse 1, chapter 22, this is a test. Dreaded words for students to hear. Put away your textbooks. Pull out your number two pencil. This is a test. This is a test. This is Not normal, this is a test. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Ah, terribly fascinating story. And in Genesis 22, Abraham is called again, just like he was in chapter 12, and the very language is framed in the same same language. I want you to go to the land that I will show you. You're going to go to the land of Moriah, and I'll show you the specific mountain. I want you to... Leave your father's, uh, your, your country, your kindred, your father's house. I want you to go to the land that I will show you. And yet again, Abraham surprises us. He obeys immediately. He wakes up the next morning. He gets up. He makes preparation to go. And yet there's a huge contrast, similar sacrifice, but huge contrast between what he had to sacrifice in chapter 12 and what he has to sacrifice in chapter 22. In chapter 12, when he's called to leave his country, his kindred, and his father's house, He is called to sacrifice his past. Everything that brought him identity, everything that brought him security, I need you to sacrifice that. In 22, Abraham has sacrificed his entire past for this promise. And God here is asking him to sacrifice his future. Wait, God. Which boy do you mean? You mean Ishmael, right? I can can part with Ishmael. No, Isaac, son of promise? God, I've already sacrificed everything in my past. You want me to? You can't seriously be asking me to sacrifice my future. What is up with this? He knows that Isaac is the promise. So he holds on to the promise of God. And yet here he has a very clear command as part of this test sacrifice him. So, how do I take a God that I know to be true to his promise, yet who has commanded me to do something that is in complete distinction of what he has revealed about himself. And so Abraham has to deal with an apparent contradiction. He goes, if I obey the command, now the promise is invalid because the child of promise is gone. And so how do I deal with this God that has always been there, has been consistently true, has rescued me out of my own foibles and faults, and yet he, he's telling me to sacrifice the promise? And the only possible, possible solution that Abraham had to this whole conundrum, was that he needed to both believe the promise and the command, and that God would be able to raise from the dead the son of promise that he was commanded to sacrifice. And this is, by the way, not conjecture. This is not preacher speak for saying Abraham got got to have his cake and eat it too. No, no, no. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, says this explicitly. The writer of Hebrews is, uh, by the mind of the Spirit, able to determine what Abraham was thinking. Here's what it says <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11, 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was, there's that word again, tested, offered up Isaac. And he had received the promises, uh, was in, he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So, pun intended, armed with this knowledge that God had the power to to both issue the command and be faithful to the promise, Abraham raises the knife, as the scriptures say, to slaughter his son. Chapter 22, verses, oh, where are we at? 10. 10 through 14. So Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Here's the key. Abraham begins to understand something about God's incredible nature. God's truthfulness to himself, and his promise of a future substitution. You see, Abraham really, when all of the facts are played out, Abraham was not required to make the sacrifice on the altar. The big sacrifice for Abraham was in his heart. And once in his heart, he had reconciled the command and the promise of God. And God is able to still be faithful to his promise, even though he's asking me to do this terrible thing. Abraham was then not required to sacrifice. Instead, a substitute was provided, this ram that was caught by its horns. And it even says explicitly that Abraham offered that up as a burnt offering instead of his son. He trusted God's character through this. And yet, We find this interesting phrase that the Lord will provide, and then a uh, scripture reference in verse 14 that says, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Interesting historical now. We don't know what mountain Abraham Abraham is on, but we have a guess. He was told to go to a mountain in the land of Moriah. So we can, this is hypotheses, we can assume that he is actually on Mount Moriah. Now, that's hugely significant because in Chronicles, we're told that Solomon built his temple on Mount Moriah. That was where Onan had his threshing floor that David bought. David made all the preparations for the temple in the place where the lambs would be sacrificed for the Passover was on Mount Moriah, the mount where the Lord has provided. The city of Jerusalem, where here the resurrection was stayed, held off, Abraham, don't do anything to the boy. But there would be a resurrection that would happen later. And in in, in painful detail, uh, almost ironically similar to the story that Abraham faces, it is a beloved son, an only son, a preciously loved son that God would provide. Not a ram, but a lamb as the ultimate substitute, his son, Jesus Christ, who would bear as our substitute the punishment that a rebellious and lost mankind deserved. Abraham was merely asked to sacrifice his son. God actually did. There was no voice from heaven to stop the killing stroke, yet it was God's good plan to crush him for our iniquities. And yet, in a way that Uh, changed the Lord's Day from a Sabbath on Saturday to a Lord's Day on Sunday. It was God's plan to raise him again, bringing life to all who would turn from their sins and believe in him. You see, the entire Abraham story is not about Abraham and it's not about Isaac. It's about God. And as we look at these character studies, man, you know, if we look at a character study of your life, do you want to be consistent? Sure you do. Are you? Heck no. No. You don't have a good reputation? Sure you do. It's going to drive you crazy if you don't have a good reputation. But you know what? At the end of the day, what matters most is not your consistency and not your reputation, but whether you have trusted Christ as God's provision for your sin. It's the story of Abraham. Abraham cannot save. And at Genesis 22, he gets an appetizer of what the God who can save would do, not only for Isaac, but for all who believe and place their faith in Jesus' Son, who died as a sin offering for the world. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I pray today that you help us to understand that um, we sometimes have a very prideful disposition that is more concerned about how we look than who we are. And I pray today as we have painted Abraham in the plainest brushstrokes possible. Yes, he was a man of great faith, But like us, he was not always consistent. He acted in ways that were completely inappropriate for someone who was a follower of God. And yet, God, you redeemed him and you allowed the story of uh, the near sacrifice of his son to be a precursor, a foreshadowing of the incredible work that you would do for us. I pray that you will help us to treasure this up in our hearts and for those of us who have trusted Christ to in our hearts offer a sacrifice of praise for the work that you have done in our life, forgiving us of our sins, causing your spirit to dwell within us, adopting us to be your sons and daughters, that we might proclaim your glorious name to those who still, to this day, walk in darkness. Father, we pray that this does not make us proud, but it makes us humble that you have chosen us to be your ambassadors to a lost and dying world. And Father, that you would help us to take our ambassadorship seriously, to realize that we may be, Uh, the only Jesus that people know, the only Bible that people read, and to take very seriously our opportunity to proclaim your glorious name about the forgiveness of sins, hope for a new life, um, the indwelling of your spirit to make decisions that are consistent with the God who created us, made us, loves us, and seeks to redeem us. Father, help us to uh, love you and to demonstrate it by how we live as people who are faithful, but not looking to our faithfulness for our justification. To the gift of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.